baptism marks us for the journey and communion is food for the journey. This morning, we're going to hear in our second lesson the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes, which is a story that is neither about the 5,000 nor about the loaves or the fishes, really, but about something entirely different. John 6, 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, ooh, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Over the next five weeks, we're going to hear passages all from John chapter 6. There's 71 verses in John chapter 6. I think it's the longest, it's the longest book in John. It's, um, It's really long, and it's really important in in John's gospel. And the setting for the entire sixth chapter is the Sea of Galilee. It's a place that today is called Tabga, which is a word that refers to the meeting place of like seven different streams. It's not a big area. It's a small region. The Sea of Galilee is beautiful, but it's more like a lake. You can see all the way across it to almost every single side. You can see the neighboring towns where Capernaum was and where... where, where, um, where outposts were, where people were going, pushing boats into the water. You can see all the way across it pretty easily. All four Gospels have this miracle. It's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. And, and, and so we have quite a bit of information about where this took place, and there's not a ton of options for 5,000 people to gather uh, in, in this region. And so we know with some certainty kind of where this event took place, where Jesus would have preached its Beautiful. I I got to go there um, a few years ago. There's a church today that's built on the spot where they just imagined that this must have taken place. The only, really one of the only places it could have taken place. It's next to a rock that they imagined if Jesus wanted to talk to, you know, a lot of people, he would have had to be up high. Maybe he stood on this rock and taught them and then... There was grass there. It was March or April. There's grass everywhere. So, 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 so there's a spot where you can imagine this happening. It's, in a way, really an unremarkable location. It looks, I don't know, like some places you might have seen. You can place yourself in 
to the story, you can imagine yourself as a part of the crowd. The crowd uh, follows Jesus, John tells us, because Jesus is healing the sick. And who doesn't want to follow that? They saw the signs that he was doing, and the crowd is curious. They're hopeful. They're also the skeptics. They're the hopeful and the skeptics together. They're the sick who need healing, and the family who have been taking care of them. They're hungry. They're hungry because it's time for dinner, but they're also willing to be hungry. They're willing to miss a meal and come to this mountainside to listen to Jesus because the deeds that he is doing and the words that he is saying seem to meet a hunger that they're more anxious to fill than their stomachs. They're hungry for saving and for truth and for hope, and that is why they follow Jesus to this place. And it's interesting, Jesus' miracle feeds their first hunger, their stomachs, but it doesn't feed that deeper hunger that they have. Jesus' miracle comes up short when it comes to meeting that hunger. It isn't lasting, because the next day, most of this same group, a lot of this same group, will come back to Jesus, and they will say, quote, show us a sign. And the day before, they've been fed on the mountaintops by five barley loaves and two fish. But the next day, they come back to Jesus, and they're still hungry. Show us a sign, they say. Moses made the manna come out of the sky, they tell Jesus. We've seen that one before. Give us something else. And Jesus says, trust me, it wasn't Moses who made the manna come from the sky. The crowd stalks off at the beginning of chapter 6. In verse 1, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands. John can't count them all. The eyewitnesses can't remember. They just say, oh, there were thousands of people following Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, the crowds have dissipated. The followers, John tells us, this, I don't know, more committed group has left. And he ends the chapter by saying, and one of his twelve was going to betray him. Thousands are there at the beginning, and by the end of the chapter, Jesus has 11 committed people still. And even they are saying, listen, what you're saying is really hard to follow. To be fed by Jesus is not to be entertained or impressed, he says, but it is to trust on him, to believe on him, in him, and through him. That's what he tells the crowd that comes back. That is what is required to hunger no more. There's a bread, and if you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry. But in our story, the crowd comes back hungry, waiting for whatever miraculous handout Jesus is willing to give them. So there's the crowd. There's also poor Philip in this story. They get to, his, to this area, and it's near Bethsaida where Philip is from. And so Jesus turns to Philip and says, What are we going to eat, Philip? Where are we going to get food? What have you prepared? Where are we to buy bread for these people? And John tells us that Jesus didn't actually expect Philip to provide the meal. Maybe he just wants him to sweat a little bit. I don't know. Philip points out the obvious that even if he did know where to get the food, they would be short about six months wages, eight months wages, somewhere in between there. And some have accused Philip of a lack of faith. He doesn't come up with some outrageous answer that displays a tremendous amount of faith, but I I don't think that's fair for Philip. I think Philip had faith. I, I bet if Jesus had asked Philip, do you think I can turn this stone into enough bread to fill these people? I bet Philip would have said, yeah, sure. I'll bet you can. 
Philip's seen some incredible things. I think Philip has faith. I'll bet you Philip would have said yes and meant it. But it never crosses Philip's mind that faith might be a response to the circumstances that he finds himself in. It just doesn't occur to him that faith might have something to do with how these people are going to get fed. When facing a food shortage, who would look to Jesus rather than to their pocketbook? Philip has faith, but he also knows that God helps those who help themselves. And so he imagines that he is expected to dig himself out of this mess, that Jesus actually does expect him to do the miracle. He will have to feed the masses in himself. Philip is deeply aware of his own limits, but he is unaware that Jesus already has a plan. He has seen miracles for the sick and the possessed, and he has preached good news. But he doesn't imagine that faith might also be an option in this situation. Perhaps we can imagine that Jesus is only present during baptism, during the church service when people commit themselves to pray for the child. And we forget that faith might even have something to say at 4.30 in the morning for two straight weeks when we're up every night. A moment this week where I was, um, yeah, I was just, I was uh, hearing those voices that you hear about how inadequate you are and comparing yourself to other people thinking about your, 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 your job or your future or what, just, just whatever it is, that voice that consistently says you're not good enough or how are you going to get through this? And, um, and then as I, w- I was preparing this sermon and I thought, you know, you know, what does it look like to switch from being, to being Philip to actually saying, no, I wonder, what, is it, what does it look like to actually say to Jesus, um, to, 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 to turn to him and expect him to have the answers rather than expect myself to come up with the answers. Philip expects that he has to have the answers. Andrew, with a thousand people at his back, has the gall to say, there's a servant boy who brought five barley loaves and two fish, and I can't imagine he says it with a straight face. I don't want to read sarcasm into a comment that was serious. And if, hey, and if he had the faith that Jesus was going to do something with those loaves, like kudos, good on you, Andrew. Um, it's hard to imagine that he thought, oh, I'll bring these and Jesus will just multiply them. But I don't know. Maybe he did. I assume he's kind of speaking tongue in cheek. And whether it's humor or faith, I don't know. If it's humor, Jesus uses it. If it's faith, Jesus uses it. Jesus seems to be saying, try me. Try me. Give me something. Give me a barley loaf. Philip, give me an idea. Give me anything. I'm going to run with it. You don't need to do anything. Just, just give me an opening. A child, probably a servant or a slave, has found himself on this mountain following Jesus. And the fact that the child is addressed alone hints that he's probably come alone, that he's not with his master. It's probably a slave who has followed Jesus up to this hillside and brought five barley loaves. Barley was the cheapest uh, of the types of, of bread to make. This child has followed Jesus up this hill and it should come as no surprise to those who follow Jesus that he is the hero of the story.
It's grassy, John tells us. There's grass because it's March. And the disciples arrange the hungry crowd by the hundreds. That is their role. Like the church today, all they can do is gather people together and tell them where to sit. They set up the tables, but they cannot feed the hungry. And Jesus takes bread, and after giving thanks, he distributes it and gives it to the people. And the bread that he distributes never runs out. And they have 12 baskets left over. The crowd has seen enough. They've eaten enough. They've followed Jesus long enough to decide this man should be king. And so they're about to run him up to Jerusalem and declare that the kingdom of Jesus is in power. But the crowd has only tasted the bread of a miracle, not the bread of life. Tomorrow, Jesus will tell them that if they want to follow him and be a part of his kingdom, if they want to taste the eternal feast, the meal that truly satisfies, they will have to be one with him, a vine coming off of his branch. They'll have to be of the same flesh, united to him, through him, filled with a hope, a hope that never goes hungry. I am the bread of life, he will say. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. That church in Tabga, they unearthed in 1922, and they date it to around the year 400. Because on the bottom of the church, uh, it's made of mosaic tiles, And there's an image in the tiles of two fish along the side of a table. And on that table, there are circles that that are the loaves of bread. But if you look closely, you see there are only four loaves. I actually actually have a a little dish that has the image on it. Um, I'll just leave it up here if you want to take a look. But it's two fish, and in the middle of the table, and on the table... There are four loaves of bread. Because for thousands of years, the church has believed not only in the miracles of Jesus, but in the fundamental truth that human beings do not live on bread alone. And 1,600 years ago, in that church, they believed what we believed today when we came forward for communion. They believed that the fifth loaf was present when the people of God gathered that there was no need to put it on the mosaic because when, when the people gathered around the table, the fifth loaf would be present, the bread of life, the body of Christ. They believed that there's a hunger in all people that can only be satisfied. There was no need to depict the fifth loaf for it would be provided. Christ himself is our food for the journey. And the faith And he's the faith that sustains us. This week, may we look to him to meet our hunger. Will you pray with me? God, by your spirit, would you prompt us when we feel hungry this week, when we feel longing this week, would you prompt us by your spirit to look to you? to trust you, to trust on you. Thank you for feeding us today, for being our nourishment for the journey. And I pray that as we go from this place, um, 
we would go with the strength and courage and the trust and the hope that comes from knowing the bread of life, the only meal that satisfies. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.